This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're going to be starting a series in Philippians. Bit by bit, we're going to work through this book of the Bible, uh, starting at verse 1 and 2. That's what we're looking at today, verse 1 and 2 of Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, we ask that as we approach your word, we would approach it as a living document, something that speaks to us today, even though it was written over 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we ask that it would be a a changing day for us. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, for those of us who have come to the faith recently. And Lord, we pray that as we think these things through, we would consider what it is to stir up one another so that we might have what is truly the making of a great church. We lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't have to tell many of you because you've probably all been a part of a church before and even if you haven't, you've probably got a good idea. But a lot of churches strive to have a great church. So even if you're fairly new, if I asked you, what's, what's some of the ingredients of a great church? I bet each one of you could give me an itemized list. Here's mine. It would be that the church is biblical, that the church has a believing membership, that the church is well-led, and that it's filled with peace and grace from God. I think it's so incredible when we look at the opening elements of the, the book of Philippians that Paul, in so few words, I think it's about 37 words in English, he just, he just lays out all of these things. Paul gives us a great recipe for a great church. The first one that he starts off with is this idea of the greatest of slaves. Paul and Timothy were perhaps some of the most important members of Christ's church that have ever walked the earth. Paul often opens his letters with reminding his readers that he's actually an apostle. Now, he doesn't feel the need here to defend his apostleship, his office, and that's probably because the the church in Philippi, they don't need convincing. One of the main reasons that Paul actually writes the book of Philippians is to thank them for their partnership in, in their ministry of Paul. He doesn't need to convince them of the importance of his office. But his role is important. We shouldn't be mistaken here. I said earlier that that the best recipe for a great church include a a biblical focus. Another way of saying this is that a church must be committed to the apostolic teaching. That's what it means to be biblical, to be a biblical church after the New Testament age. This is actually what's true of every church after the New Testament. In fact, in the earliest documents that we have, in Acts 2.42, it says, speaking of the church, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. This is the summation uh, sentence that, that is said after Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. You know about that sermon? There's 3,000 people in one day are brought into the household of God. And that's the summary statement. These 3,000 people, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. The idea of an apostolic church was always Jesus' plan. He always planned to use the apostles to lay a foundation of teaching for the church. This is why Jesus spent three full years with them. And this is why he said in John 16, 12 and 13, he said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only of what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And in Acts 1.8, he says to them, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus specifically chooses the apostles to, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. We all know that the work of Jesus happened and that all of the great things that he did went on in history because of the apostles. I don't know about you. I'm a bit of a control freak. Some of you don't know that about me yet. But if I were Jesus, I might be tempted to hang around and make sure that the job is done correctly. But Jesus chose men like Paul to get the job done. This is why Paul said to the church in Ephesus at chapter 2, verse 20, he said that, they, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So Paul is an important guy. In fact, he writes more books of the New Testament than anyone. And so is Timothy. Timothy is a really important guy. He has two books of the Bible named after him. People get named after him. Though he's not an apostle, he held a special place in Paul's ministry. He's likely converted very early on in Paul's ministry. He's mentioned in six letters. He probably at times acts as Paul's secretary. And he probably, it seems, because he's part of Paul's address to the church, it seems that, that Timothy actually writes this book as Paul dictates to him the content. Important. And yet, these important guys call themselves slaves. Not servants. Slaves. Paul, the writer of 13 books. Timothy noted in six of those books, slaves. Not just any slaves, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, slaves in, in Paul's day, in, in that very early part of the church... They weren't free. They, they were there to serve at their master's beck and call. And they were there to do the jobs of the lowest class. Slaves made up the lowest class in society. 
and they would therefore do the most awful jobs, the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Now, some of them were very well educated as well. But either way, for Paul, he understands that his role, no matter how important he might be, is as a slave for Christ. Now, this is really important because to be a biblical church, you must be, we must be, devoted to Paul and the other apostles' teaching. But you must also be devoted to Paul's and the other apostles' posture. Whatever else Paul and Timothy were, they were first and foremost slaves of Christ. Paul, at the end of the time of writing this letter, he he finds himself, when he's writing this letter, he finds himself as a prisoner of Rome simply because he was devoted to Christ. Don't miss this in Paul's address. Paul wants his readers to consider that he was, first and foremost, a slave, serving the church with all that he had, so that it was clear that this is how the work of Christ is done. If Paul and Timothy were slaves of Christ, with as important as they were, what excuse do we have to be otherwise? Another one of the recipes, in fact, ingredient number two, is that the people are saints, or as the NIV puts it, God's holy people. I don't know if you know this, but saints are not a select few dead people that do special miracles for you. Every, every Christian, without exception, is a saint. Paul assumes this of the people in the church at Philippi. He, he assumes that they are believers, and this is important. And that's, it's important because Christians are meant to be different from the world. The world looks on at the church, and it can smell hypocrisy a mile away. The world expects the church to act like Christ, even if it mocks the church for acting like Christ. And this is exactly what Peter means when he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, he says, live, in su- live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Peter expects that Christians will have a different set of standards from the world. And believe it or not, this different set of standards in morality will lead to accusations of immorality. Sound familiar? Sexuality? Gender? The worship of the state? But while these initial reactions to living a godly life will lead to accusations, eventually, Paul says, it will actually lead to the glorifying of God. Eventually. Here's the problem, though. The church, for many different reasons, has been filled with unbelievers. And this isn't a good thing. We can expect, we can't expect non-believers to live godly lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want non-believers here. We do. We desperately do. But we want to make clear who are Christians and who are not. We want to make clear that it's those people that are, that are believing in Jesus, clinging to Jesus, that have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, that are Christians. Non-Christians should always be welcomed here. They should always be welcomed in the church. But we want to make it clear that Christians should be different. When those who don't believe see people who say they are Christians acting like the world, 
they conclude that Christians are frauds and therefore that the whole Christian faith must be false. Like it or not, how we act has a bearing upon our witness. The problem is not our different moral standard. The problem is, is that for far too long, the world has seen us preaching against certain things while not practicing what we preach. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, he says, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say to people, should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor, harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It might feel unfair when non-Christians accuse the church of being immoral. But could those accusations be fair? Maybe not of you, but certainly as a whole. When the church is filled with unregenerate people, people who don't really cling to Christ, we should not be, we should not be surprised when people do not live up to the standards of Christ. But this is, does not mean that Christians are going to be perfect. Paul addresses the Philippian church as saints, even though he sees within the church problems. But only when the general membership of the church is actually saved can we have any hope of the church being an effective witness. Make no mistakes, there are standards that you must live by. But also make no mistakes, you will not live with them and you will not live by them without the spirit who was given to every believer. This sainthood, though, is as a result of their relationship to Jesus Christ. They are not God's holy people in and of themselves. Paul actually calls them, he says, to God's holy people in Christ Jesus. They are holy because they belong to Christ. This has more to say about Christ than it does about the saints. To be in Christ means to be in relationship with Christ, to share in the benefits and rewards won by Jesus, who alone lived a perfect life and yet was crucified for sins. Not his own sins, but the sins of his people. Jesus Christ is also the risen one. He is the champion of his people, destroying sin through his death and destroying death through his resurrection. Though a believing it must, though a believer must trust in Christ Jesus, his perfect life, his cleansing death, his victorious resurrection, in trusting they all become ours. This is actually what it means to be saved. To be saved by Jesus means that because of our faith in him, sin and death no longer defeat us. Jesus destroyed sin and death in the flesh so that sin has, has been forgiven and death is now victory. Sin has been defeated in that it has been forgiven, and that through Jesus Christ, we can now have victory over sin. We now can do things on a day-to-day -day basis that are, that are pleasing to God. And with the Spirit's help, we are, we are killing individual sins in our life. And death is victory because though we die, Death only leads to eternal life. All of this is from being in Christ Jesus.
The third ingredient of a great church, according to Paul, is that it's led. Notice here that not only does Paul address the saints, he also addresses some specific saints, the overseers and deacons. These are the two officers that are tasked with leading the church and each has a slightly different role. Firstly, notice that the overseer, it's overseers, not overseer. Those in the leadership of the church are always addressed in plural. There is no evidence in Paul's day of a single leader at the head of the local church. There was always a group of leaders tasked with caring for the church. This is the function of the overseers, or elders as we call them in our church. Paul says this in Ephesus uh, in Acts 20, verse 28. He says to them, to these elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherd of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This means that it is the overseers or elders who are to look after the church. But this is more about function than it is about office. These are the ones who are tasked especially with caring for the church. And this is why these people are often called pastors. Have you ever wondered about that term? Pastors? The term is actually an agricultural term for those who do pastoral farming. In farming, these people care for grazing animals like sheep. Paul actually uses this term in Ephesians 4, verse 11, when he calls the office of overseers pastors and teachers. So when you think of pastors, think shepherds. Though pastors don't feed our sheep on grass, we feed our sheep on the Word of God. There are specific qualifications for elders. These are laid out in places like 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. They include things like being above approach, being a man of one wife, being self-controlled, hospitable, able to teach, not a recent convert. I'll leave you to look up the list. Needless to say, though, an overseer must be a godly man who is mature in the faith and is looking to care for the sheep, not take advantage of them. Though the sheep can certainly make this a harder or easier task, a, a burden or a joy, and only one of these is as, as a, an advantage to the sheep. Deacons fall into a much the same category. In fact, the biblical qualifications come just after the elders' qualifications. Deacon means servant. This is a bit of a funny title to me because every office has the function of servant. But deacon functions in an official leadership role in deeds of service in the church. They are never tasked specifically with general oversight, nor with teaching. They look after more logistical matters, freeing the elders to serve in the ministry of prayer and word. The final ingredient, according to Paul, is this idea of peace and, and grace and peace, the grace and peace of God. He calls it the grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. There is a significance to the word order here, which is hidden a little bit in our English translations. More rightly, the word order is grace to you and peace, not grace and peace to you. When the grace 
of God and Christ is given to the church, peace is the natural result. Not only is this a nice prayer from Paul, it is a profound summary of Paul's overall message throughout his whole ministry. All of God's saving actions towards humanity is based on grace. Grace is God's love, His kindness, His mercy, His favour, as directed to unworthy sinners. Naturally, our sin means that the only activity that is deserved by us from God is judgment. Every sin committed by us and by our human, uh, human race is an act of war against a holy God. Imagine if our powerful God acted as our sins deserve. Who could win the fight? Those saved by Christ, Christ don't get judgment, though, as they deserve. They get love. They get mercy. This is what it means to be saved by grace. God works in us to achieve what we could not do ourselves, and He does this in and through Christ Jesus. This means that God, in Christ Jesus, takes what we mean for war and he turns it into a declaration of peace. Paul speaks of Christ like this in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If you recognize that you are still at war with God, here's the good news. Because of Christ, because of you, but your sin is not what will keep you at odds with God. Because of Christ, it will be your unbelief. It will be the fact that you don't trust in Christ. Through trust in Christ, all that He has won for us as our champion, as our victor, becomes yours. And then you have peace with God. For those who feel like they are still at war with God, that their sin has not yet been mortified, has not yet been killed, is not yet been crucified, that they don't yet feel empowered by the Spirit, my beckoning call to you today is to come to Jesus. Trust that He has done enough. But all of this, all of these ingredients has been really given to us by Jesus. Yes, it's Paul's recipe for a great church, but really it's Jesus who determined that he would use the apostles to serve the church to lay in a foundation that include writing scripture. It is Jesus who formed his church by saving sinners, washing them clean and gifting them the spirit. It is Jesus who determined that he would leave under shepherds, shepherds who are under him to care for the local church. And it is the grace of Jesus that provides us peace. All of this is a responsibility for us, for each one of us. None of us don't have a responsibility here. All of us have the responsibility to apply these ingredients to the church. To be great slaves. To be spirit-filled saints. To be well-led. And to be filled with God's grace and peace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the love that's been offered to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us a great church, not great according to the world's standards. We don't care about having great names. We don't care about having prestige. 
Lord, we want to be a great church according to your standards. We want to care for people within our church. We want to be people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, just like the church in Acts. Lord, help us to do this in all of our weakness. You use weak men like the Apostle Paul. Therefore, we know that you can use weak people like us. Accomplish your task in our day through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.